Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and on today's show, we're going to look at monitoring air pollution following a problem of a methane leak in California. And also, we're going to look at how many people it takes to change a light bulb at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. With me to discuss these topics are Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent. Hello, Miranda. Hello, Ken. And Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. Hello, Jason. Hello. So, Miranda, let's first turn to you. Air pollution has been a problem for a very long time. What's going on right now? So back in October, a old well holding a lot of methane quite near Los Angeles, I think it's technically in a Los Angeles sort of neighborhood, um, started to leak methane. And nobody did much about this for a while, but uh, it is actually very problematic. Uh, methane is an odorless, colorless gas, um, but the state uh, at which it was was being held, other chemicals had been added to it so that actually people in LA kind of started to notice this rather nasty egg smell, um, which, you know, while unpleasant, you know, perhaps could be dealt with. But methane is actually a greenhouse gas that is much uh, more effective at trapping heat than, say, carbon dioxide. So noxious odors and a lot of it, presumably. Yes, vast amounts. So we think about uh, more than 80,000 tons of the stuff uh, have leaked out since October 23rd, I believe, is when the leak started occurring. On January 6th, uh, Jerry Brown, California's governor, declared a state of emergency and basically told the company uh, in charge of the well that they had to get their act together, get it cleaned up by March 31st. But we'll probably likely see you know, many, many more tons leaking out before then. Now, the good news, though, is that we can monitor such air pollution calamities much better today than we could in the past. Absolutely. And uh, I know this is something that you know, you are particularly interested in sort of bringing big data to uh, health and environmental problems around us. But essentially, developments in sensor technology have gotten such that we can now make smaller, better sensors more cheaply than we could before. And there are a lot of companies around the world that are starting to use this fact to produce apps and websites and mapping technology that people can use to look around them and detect not only methane, but particulates, volatile organic compounds that combine with nitrous oxides to help make smog. And these kind of nasties in the air are very, very bad for health. So it's important that people start to realize what's there and what they're inhaling. Now, you're profiling one of these initiatives in an upcoming issue. Yes, yes, I am. I am currently researching a, a company based out of San Francisco called Aclima that is trying to not only install air pollution monitoring devices in many places, but also to kind of create a larger platform through which these devices can share their information 
information with people. These monitors will detect uh, in private properties, potentially levels of carbon dioxide and even perhaps methane uh, in rooms. They could also be installed on public transport so you know what kind of nasties are in the air on your bus route and also in uh, streetlights and things like that to detect street levels of pollution. So Aclima are essentially trying to build up a very small-scale map of the kinds of pollutants that are around people in, in particular cities. And they hope with Google's support essentially to add this to Google Earth so that it can kind of become a veil, uh, a layer you could add so you can see whether your house, for example, is in a pollution hotspot in your city. That's really incredible. So in other words, we have uh, companies who are doing this and by creating this veil, we would be able to see maybe market-based principles applying. So if you wanted to take a ski holiday in Switzerland, in the Swiss Alps or in the French Alps, but you see that Val d'Isère is heavily polluted and in Switzerland it's a lot nicer, you might then choose Switzerland. So we can see that data transparency fuels a lot of these great social benefits that we'd like to get. Absolutely. And and increasing data transparency, I think, is what Klima in particular is about. And also, it's about expanding the scale. So there are companies, I'm thinking of Plume Labs here, which has a great app that processes about half a million data points every day from 11,000 monitoring stations. Um, so that, you know, if you download it, you can see what uh, pollution's like in the world's big cities, like San Francisco, for example. What a Klima is trying to do, for example, is it's been running a pilot scheme in Google's offices in California for the past couple of years. And in Google's offices alone, they've been processing half a billion data points a day on air quality. So we're, we're taking up a notch. Phenomenal. So you get you got the granularity, so you can go down to specificity that you couldn't before. You've got time-based data, more of it, so you can understand how patterns change. And we know from the Fukushima crisis that there's lots of hotspots that you think that you're covering one area and that you have a single number for it, but in fact that the wind currents are such that a lot of, say, in this case, radioactive material would gather in one part of a park but not in another part of a park. It would be as different as that or one side of a street versus another. Absolutely. And it's really interesting you bring up Fukushima because there were a lot of interesting sensor projects by academics and others kind of aside from the Japanese government that actually produced vastly more data on where radiation hotspots uh, were than could have been produced otherwise. Absolutely. Until maybe the after the first anniversary of the crisis, there was a single sensor in Shinjuku Park for all of that was to represent wow. all of Tokyo. Made no sense. And then you had um, that citizen science project with Joey Ito of MIT, among others who were involved in it, that were identifying it on a street by street level. In fact, I participated in it. I was living in Tokyo at the time. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And um, and it's obviously very clear with radiation. But to bring it back to the kind of health point that you picked up about air pollution earlier, I mean, if you do have this greater data transparency and and people can see exactly what's around them, you are going to start perhaps getting some tough questions heading to politicians about, you know, why is my neighborhood so dirty? What are you doing about it? Fantastic. In fact, you could imagine that with this transparency, Governor Brown might have acted earlier rather than wait until as long as he did. Absolutely. Might have been much more public pressure. Jason. Well, I was just going to say there must also be knock-on effects uh, for for industries themselves. This isn't just about sort of discrete events and emergencies and so on, but sort of, you know, systemic problems. I know, for instance, in a lot of big cities, there's a lot of leakage from, from natural gas systems that the companies themselves would like to know about. Absolutely. And um, the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a, a green group in the States, uh, has been using similar techniques uh, to Acclima to try and map methane specifically because actually if you tell companies uh, where 
methane is leaking out of their, their pipes, that's lost product. And uh, it, algorithms from the Environmental Defense Fund uh, actually tell companies, you know, which pipes to fix first. Um, so it's it's a win-win situation. I love it. It's a little bit like GPS for air quality or just pollutants in general, in which you have open data that you lay out as a new infrastructure that people can develop new services and business models on top of. Absolutely. How interesting. Thank you, Miranda. Jason, now let's turn to you. A team at MIT have figured out a way to make light bulbs more efficient. Please enlighten us. Um, we're, we're talking about incandescent bulbs, which are being phased out all over the world, really, and, and becoming increasingly tricky to get hold of because they're terrible offenders on the energy front, right? Uh, they have a nice warm glow. They can be dimmed. They warm up immediately and so on, but they throw away more than 90%, 95% of the energy is in the infrared. is just wasted as heat. So uh, for the energy conscious, they're appalling. What we're hearing about this week is a, a kind of a redesign, a bit of technology added to a good old-fashioned incandescent bulb design that recoups some of that wasted energy. So why are we trying to innovate around the incandescent light bulb? I thought the LEDs were going to be the miracle light bulb that we were all going to shift to. Well, probably in the longer term, they are. Um, there are still some issues around the color spectrum. People are very attached to exactly the kind of color that you get uh, from, from regular light bulbs. It mimics daylight. It's more like what you would expect sort of natural light to be. And that is coming along, certainly and efficiency is coming along, certainly. But one way for the incandescent bulb to, to kind of make another appearance, to, to overtake LEDs, is if they could actually become more efficient. Okay, Miranda. I was just going to ask a quick question. Um, what is LED light like, then, by comparison? Well, let's put it this way. I'll turn it on and you have to wear your sunglasses because it's white and artificial. Okay. So does that sound about right? Well, uh, you turn on a light bulb, and if you look at a sort of a graph of which colors at which intensities and so on, it's pretty continuous. It's all of the colors all the time, including lots of colors that you can't see, um, whereas LEDs are made up from red, green, and blue, discrete ones, and you overlap those, and you have a little, a few dips here and there that kind of, that, that remove some of the colors that make it feel more natural. So while we wait for LEDs to someday take over and destroy us, we are going to have better incandescent bulbs. Well, this is the idea, anyway. Uh, it's a new technology coming out of uh, MIT, as you mentioned earlier. And the idea is basically what people have been thinking since the mid-'70s, which is if you take some of that infrared light and try to reflect it back, then you, you know, up the overall efficiency. Basically, the color that comes out of one of these bulbs is a function just of how hot that it gets. So if you reflect some of that infrared light back, some of that heat back, you get more heat onto the filament. You require less current from the mains in order to, to reach that temperature. Everybody's a winner. You get the visible out. You get less current in. It's more like the efficiency that we see from other, other technologies. So these guys at MIT have found a new way to do that reflecting um, using, wouldn't you know it, nanotechnology. Of course. The idea is a lot like, let me see on your glasses there. You, you do have anti-reflection coatings on your glasses, I can see. Mm -hmm. These are just built up. These kinds of coatings are just built up from very, very, very thin layers of alternating materials, which each have different refractive indices and so on. The, the net effect is that some waves cancel and some waves add up and you get reflections or you get no reflections or whatever it is. This same sort of thing, but operating in the infrared, is really tricky to do, but... Thanks to some incredible computational power that they, they have down there at MIT, they were able to figure out what kind of stack of different materials would be required to create exactly the reflection coating that lets the visible through and reflects the IR back onto the filament. And so how much of a better improvement do they get? Well, uh, with their kind of first effort, which was only 90 layers, can you believe they stopped at 90 layers, um, they got up to 6.6%. Hmm. Now, that's two to maybe three times as efficient as your average incandescent bulb and comparable to some LEDs. This is kind of, we're kind of getting the same ballpark. But the thing is, if they were to go up to 300 layers, 
uh, to kind of you know increase the same thing, get the same you know get higher efficiencies of reflection and of transmission and so on. They reckon they could get to as high as forty percent. Must be really expensive to make this technology. It is, and it isn't. I mean, these these are these are exactly the same kinds of coatings. These are the same materials and and methods as as ultimately put them on on your eyeglasses. I paid a fortune for these glasses, Jason. <laughs> the coatings were cheap. Okay, maybe <laughs> not at Harrods. Um, the the greater question is whether or not they have the same lifetimes. You know, we, we uh, as a sort of century old technology, light bulbs have gotten to be very good. Certainly, fluorescent light bulbs can can last a very long time. New technologies like this, the real question, as with batteries, is do they last as long? And anyway, these guys aren't only worried about uh, improving the incandescent light bulb. They're kind of showing off this technology for you know energy harvesting technologies more generally. And that certainly seems very promising. It's great. It looks like it's going to be really optimistic to, to know that we can innovate around the our dear friend, the incandescent light bulb. Well, it could have done that anyway. The question is, can we keep the colors that we love so much? Great question. Well, we hope our listeners can answer some of those things on social media. Listeners can share their spectrum of ideas by tweeting us at EconSciTech or on Facebook. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.